baseball fans. It's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. The Atlanta Braves have given you a championship. Listen to this crowd. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. Time to talk a little bit of Braves and Major League Baseball. As always, appreciate you making some time in your week or your weekend or whenever you're listening to this to join us. And of course, we're hoping we have baseball back sooner than later. Got a lot of stuff planned on the show for today. My buddy Gabe Burns from the AJC is going to check in. We're going to talk some Braves. And then, of course, I'll chat with Bill Rowland about what's going on with Major League Baseball, what the latest is as far as plans, contingent as they may be, to try to get the 2020 season underway when this health crisis has passed and we're able to actually gather again or simply when players are able to gather up again in groups of, what, 26 or more, I guess, and try to play a Major League Baseball game. So we'll chat about all of that. Some news coming out on Friday that should be pretty interesting. And we also are going to talk about your low-key favorite players. Not your superstar favorite players, but just some player that you liked for whatever reason. Bill and I will share ours, and we, of course, ask for yours on social media. And we'll get to all of that on the show as well. Before we get to all of that, I want to let you know how you can connect with the show. You can subscribe to From the Diamond on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Ratings and reviews, always appreciated. Keep those coming. And if you like the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend as well. Also, on social media, you can find the show on Twitter at FromTheDiamond underscore. I am on Twitter as well, at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. On Instagram, at FromTheDiamond is where you can find the show. I am at Grant McCauley on Instagram. And every episode of the show and so much more is there for you at FromTheDiamond.com. So time to talk a little bit about the Atlanta Braves. Of course, not a lot's going on on the field as we sit around and wait for when we're going to get some clearance and when we're going to find out when we get baseball back, but did want to cover what's been going on with Atlanta. And to help me do that, I want to welcome in Gabe Burns, of course, writer for the AJC. You can follow him on Twitter at GabeBurnsAJC. Gabe, I know you're kind of in the same boat that I am in that we're just sitting here waiting and kind of hoping everybody's going to come through this thing okay and sooner than later, but man. We have been missing baseball, something serious, and it's just been kind of weird to be sitting here now in the month of April and not have Major League Baseball and the Atlanta Braves in our life. Yeah, Grant, uh, thanks for having me on as always. But, I mean, yeah, this is crazy. I mean, it's it's just crazy for all of us, managers, the players, uh, media, fans, everybody. Hope everybody's out there staying safe, and, you know, hopefully we can we can get through this and wind up having a season after all. But, yeah, I mean, it was kind of – everything was really slow kind of coming to this point, but it felt so fast in the moment. You know, we're standing six feet away from players and interviews and, you know, within the next week, the whole thing is canceled. So it's just, it's definitely crazy, but hope everybody's staying safe. Yeah, for sure. Really unprecedented times, I think, for everybody involved. And of course, not just in the sports world, the baseball world, but in our world in general. I don't think any of us could have foreseen this being something that was going to stop baseball and stop our life, really, in a lot of ways in its tracks. But I mean, I echo what you're saying and have been saying this for a number of weeks on the show. I just hope everybody's spending the time with the people that they care about, keeping themselves safe and 
following the protocols as best we can as we try to get through this thing. But you know, for baseball, they're in such an interesting position because, of, of course, sports for a lot of us uh, you know, is an escape, I would say, from a fan side. For you and me who work as professionals in the industry in one way, shape, or form, uh, it's a little bit surreal to not have that part of your you know, work life in place, not to mention you know, sports are still pretty fun for us as well. But uh, I think it's just been an adjustment period that we, we've gone through to try to figure out what this you know, new normal is going to be, but hopefully it's not going to be something that hangs around for too terribly long. I did want to talk a little bit about what we saw in spring training in particular. I know you were around the club throughout, and it seemed like we had some good storylines going. We had some opportunity in the rotation, of course, with an aged pitcher like Felix Hernandez, who was getting an opportunity pitching pretty well. A couple of young guns like Sean Newcomb and Kyle Wright that were looking for spots in that rotation as well. You got a firsthand look at all of those guys. Who impressed you the most among those candidates that were kind of clawing for those spots in rotation behind Mike Fultonevich, Mike Soroka, and Max Fried? Conversation starts with Felix. I mean, what an impressive spring he had. And he was really showing that, you know, despite the drop off in velocity, he was really figuring out how to pitch. And I mean, he's a really confident guy. He made it clear if I'm healthy, I should be in this rotation. And he never wavered from that. And everything we saw from him, there was no reason to think he wasn't going to be in the rotation. So, you know, I've been asked this a lot, but I absolutely think he was going to be part of that first five mix. And, you know, we'll see how things would have transpired. You know, maybe he winds up only making 10 starts and then he's done. But those guys with that pedigree, you have to love betting on those guys, putting them in a winning environment something that really he's craved for and kudos to him in a time that a lot of players have, you know, demanded out from their situations. He was totally loyal to Seattle. And I think a lot of people would say loyal to a fault, but a lot of credit goes toward him for that. And, you know, it was, I think we were really robbed of what could have been a really cool story with him uh, making the Braves rotation and trying to contribute to a team that has world series aspirations. So uh, definitely the spring training conversation revolved around him. Uh, I would say Kyle Wright really impressed, uh, and he impressed last spring. I understand that. He seemed a little bit different. I, I think he really mentally he knows that I belong now. Uh, I do think that the whole year, you know, we always hammer home about having another year of experience and whatnot, and I know people get tired of hearing that, but it really does matter. And for Kyle, I think it mattered a lot, and my kind of bold prediction was that he would be a rotation regular by midseason. Uh, obviously that's not going to be the case anymore, but uh, there was definitely a lot of reasons to be encouraged with him. And just seeing Ian Anderson, just seeing him throw. I'm not a baseball scout, but you can tell when something is different, when something is special. And just watching Ian, Tyler Flowers was telling me about, he just didn't expect the ball to come out that quickly. Uh, So I, I definitely say those three, as far as pitchers, really made an impression this spring. And I think that Kyle would certainly be starting games soon enough. And it was really, it was a solid chance that Ian was going to be making some spot starts down the line too. So uh, the Braves are definitely, you know, with or without Felix in the future, they're definitely in good hands. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. One of the questions that I had, and one of the questions a lot of fans had as well, is that given the success that we saw Sean Newcomb enjoy in the bullpen last year, I know that there's only a finite amount of spots. And if we're talking about Cole Hamels not missing time now that he's had all of this time off to recover and have himself ready for whenever opening day is going to be. Clearly, if you start doing the math, there's not a whole lot of opportunity beyond that. But just kind of looking at where Sean Newcomb fits best and maybe where he has the best chance to really perform and make a difference for this team, 
Will Smith, to me, is the only given in the bullpen as far as lefties are concerned. Uh, obviously, A.J. Minter was optioned down. He's got some stuff to figure out. Grant Dayton had a rough spring, and he hasn't really ever had a full big league season's worth of success either, so some question marks around it. I really look at Sean Newcomb as a guy that could be a serious weapon in the bullpen and maybe a serious need that could be filled by the Braves for having another left-hander they believe they can count on in a mix of a bullpen that's really predominantly right-handed relievers outside of Will Smith. I completely agree, and I do think he was going to get that opportunity to start again. And he wants to be a starter. He's made it abundantly clear he wants to be a starter. And his agent was in touch with the Braves, even at the end of last season, just about, you know, what does the future hold here? You know, is he going to be a starter moving forward? But this team is trying to win. Um, That's the bottom line. I think some of us are still, you know, caught up in player development. And obviously that's important. But, you know, when you're looking at at their rotation options, I think in time, eventually – Maybe Newcomb was outstanding and keeps his rotation spot, but I'm with you in that, you know, looking at it through the course of an entire season, he seemed to have been a guy who could be a real weapon out of the bullpen and especially a bullpen that lacks lefties. So, and not to mention he could also cover innings, which, you know, it's always a good thing to have somebody like that. So I do think that eventually he probably would have wound up a weapon in the bullpen because he found so much success there and don't fix what's, you know, what's broken. It's not broken. Excuse me. You do fix what's broken. But yeah, interesting. Whenever we get the season going again, Sean Newcomb's going to be one of the more fascinating stories here. So really curious to see how that unfolds. But in the case of a 162 game campaign, I'm with you. I I did think that uh, one way or another, he would probably be worked back into the bullpen. Yeah. And it just seems like a place that not only benefits the team, but also a place where he did find success. And I think at the end of the day, or however you want to, you know, apply a cliche to it, he'd much rather be pitching in the big leagues in relief than be spending more time in AAA Gwinnett sitting there waiting and wishing he had an opportunity because he was squeezed out completely by the numbers game. So as a career Mm -hmm. unfolds for players, I've always felt like sometimes, you know, the best laid plans may not come to fruition, but he may find himself being a valuable big league pitcher for a number of years, just in a role that's different than he may have felt that it was. But on the flip side of that coin, from a competitor standpoint and from a personal goal standpoint, I'm sure that Sean Newcomb, a starter for his entire life, would like to remain a starting pitcher. So I can understand the balance. He's trying to walk there, obviously, but also for the team, as you mentioned, I don't think this can be said enough. The bottom line is winning and having the best now 26 guys to help you do that And I think Sean Newcomb can certainly do it out of the bullpen in terms of making a contribution. So just a little bit of chatter about what's going on with that rotation. Of course, we need to see what the season's going to look like lengthwise. That could say a lot about how many starters the Braves might choose to use. And I was reading an article about the Yankees a little bit earlier, or a little bit later, I guess, uh, in the month of March, now that we've turned the page into April, that they might actually use more than five starters in an attempt to try to manage some of these innings and help out some of these starting pitchers that have had to shut down, and now they're going to have to restart and ramp back up and build back up uh, to be ready to cover more and more innings. What do you think of that kind of concept of you know having extra guys on the roster when and if this season gets started and being able to use perhaps a sixth, maybe even a seventh, you know, air quotes, starting pitcher to cover bulk innings because you're not expecting the starter to go six, seven, eight innings at any point early on in the season? Yeah, Baseball is kind of trending that way anyway. Mm-hmm. You don't have a official six- or seven-man rotation, but teams are kind of using these guys, working them in. So, yeah, I do think this is going to be so unique. Um, 
I just spent a lot of time thinking about it. How do you manage the rosters? You know, uh, they're talking about seven inning double headers. I mean, all it's really going to throw out so much of what we know about really player management and game management, I think, to the point that a lot of people are right when they go, you know, is a championship going to be valid here? Uh, you know, this is really going to have an asterisk on it. Not like the Astros, but <laughs> I, I don't know. It's going to be so different. And a lot of these managers are going to take well to it, and a lot of them are going to be frustrated by it. So I do think it is definitely safe to say, you know, even if these guys have that two- to three-week build-up period, which we assume would be the case if they do wind up playing, you know, obviously there's going to be expanded rosters and there's going to be expanded rotations. So I think in the Braves' case, you're going to have Felix, you're going to have Kyle Wright, and, you know, maybe you are working with a seven-man rotation or or whatever it is. So uh, it'll definitely be interesting, but – Teams like the Braves uh, would be actually best positioned for that because of their uh, abundance of arms, whereas some of these other teams who lack guys are going to struggle mightily. Yeah, and it might even be a case of, and I know folks a lot of times hate to hear this term, but if you piggyback starters where, you know, say Mike Soroka is in charge of that first four innings, and then you've got another arm, just say it is Kyle Wright or, or say it's Sean Newcomb, that comes in and, hey, if you can finish this game, that's great. That means we used two pitchers that night and we're not – running through the bullpen, which now with the three batter minimum, that whole thing has changed quite a bit as well. And we know Sean Newcomb can get out righties and lefties. And if he wants an opportunity to throw bulk innings, I mean, that's the kind of scenario that I've had plenty of time to think about and plenty of time to read about what other teams might be thinking about as well that just seem to be kind of interesting as we wait to see what the season's going to look like. But with a lot of uh, variables to be decided, it does seem like there could be the big possibility for guys to get different and unique opportunities, to use that word again, when we do get back to baseball at some point. I did put out the request for some Braves questions from fans, Gabe. If you got a couple of minutes, we'll fire through a couple of these that you might have heard before in some cases. <laughs> sure. Thing. All right. So one of the questions we always get is trades. You know, What's the possibility here of a trade? So I will go with the first one of those from James Sumner, who wanted to know who is the ideal trade target for the Braves this summer. I'll go ahead and throw out, I would love to see the Braves get Francisco Lindor. Uh, who do you think would best suit the Braves or best fit the Braves for their win-now window, which they're most certainly in? The last mailbag I did, somebody asked me about my uh, dream 2021 lineup. I, I added Lindor in there. I'm with you as far as if he's going to be available, you're trying to win a World Series, then that's your guy. I understand there's concerns about signing him long term. Uh, first, well, not to get off topic, but first of all, the Braves should be able to actually sign him long term. I think it would be more of a, is it worth it? And these deals rarely work out anyway. So, you know, I think it's more of that. But they certainly are afforded an opportunity with the Acuna and Aussie contracts that, you know, they could afford to give 200 plus million to one guy. The question is, you know, do they want to do it? Uh, but anyway, yeah, definitely Lindor, uh, as far as if you're just tr- talking adding the best player, and the NFL draft is this month, so best available player is a, a, good, a good way to, to go here. I know people are going to talk about Chris Bryant. They're going to talk about third base. But quite frankly, I, I was uh, so encouraged by Camargo and Riley. And I understand it's spring training. Don't be fooled by spring training. I do feel like they will get enough production there one way or another that do you want to trade top prospects for Chris Bryant? Probably not, given the affordability of who they're going to have at third base. So, you know, maybe if 
Camargo repeats last year and Riley just completely loses feel. I mean, at that point, maybe you talk about it, but judging by off the small spring sample size that we got, I don't feel like third base is going to be this huge, we have to go get a guy. Shortstop, however, and this is not really an indictment on Dansby, it's more about adding the best player you can get. I mean, Lindor would be a pretty, uh, it'd be one of the biggest moves in Braves history, no doubt. Um, you could argue if it would make them on paper the best team in the NL. Uh, LA's still pretty pretty damn good. And then you could also go back to, you know, would they want to add a frontline starter? I think regardless of how much pitching depth you have, I think it's always in the conversation if there's a frontline guy available. Again, you can look to Cleveland for that. But, you know, this team is in a really good position that I don't think there's really one thing you can be like, well, they really need this, they really need that. Given Ozuna's on a one-year deal, you know, next winter, not to look too far ahead, but, you know, could we be talking about them trying to add another power bat again? Because if Ozuna goes, you're kind of, you know, depending on where Riley is, you know, once again, you kind of have that that you had when Donaldson left. So, you know, there's different – you can kind of nitpick things I could use. Their bullpen should be pretty good, but odds are you're always going to want another reliever. But in general, especially uh, as far as these contending hopefuls, like I know a lot of people – really like Cincinnati. Cincinnati's got a few holes. You know, the Cardinals have a few holes. The Diamondbacks have a few holes. They're actually really close. That's a pretty good team over there. Uh, So I definitely think that right now the Braves and Dodgers are kind of the envy of the NL because, quite frankly, the Braves could add a number of spots, but they're not going to be desperate for any of them. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good point. It's interesting with Arizona as well. If you just kind of look at what they've done the last couple of years, they got rid of Paul Goldschmidt. They lost Patrick Corbin to the Nationals in free agency, and they traded Zach Greinke. And then we can sit here and say, hey, that's a pretty good team because they have done some adding since then. So they're going to be, I think, an interesting team, at least for the wild card perspective, if not uh, one that might be a little bit difficult for the L.A. Dodgers, which nobody's really had that opportunity to push the Dodgers, you know, wire to wire when it comes to winning the National League West in quite some time. So a little bit of intrigue out there couple more Braves questions for you. I know you brought up Chris Bryant, so inevitably I have to bring up the other side of that coin, which is Nolan Arenado. Uh, I got a question from Robert Sabbath who wants to know, uh, will this quarantine uh, and delayed start affect our inevitable future trade for Nolan Arenado? Got a couple of emojis that went with that as well. But seriously, he does want to know if the delay helps or hurts future trading opportunities because it could go either way. And I think like anything, Gabe, you just – got to proceed with caution you'll have to play the service time game but when you look at Nolan Arenado he's under a long-term contract but the thing that worries me the most about him is the fact that he can opt out of that deal so how much do you give up and how long do you have Nolan Arenado and you just have to ask because he's a Colorado guy what's he going to look like outside of Coors Field when it comes to the overall offensive impact I think he'll still be very good but will he be the guy that we've seen for the open of his career if he's not getting to hit in the rarefied air 81 times a year. Yeah, there's leaving course. There's always the age factor when you have a guy signed that long. You have to look at maybe how many of those years are not going to be you know, his best years. When I look at the Arenado thing, and I'm a big fan of his, if you get the chance to see him in person, if you're just a baseball nerd and you just like watching guys field, I mean, just do the little – I mean, he is one of the absolute uh, most fun – uh, players I've ever watched in person. Uh, he's a really special talent. I just, when I look at this with the Braves, I wonder if you're willing to give up this for Arenado and take on this and try to get him to waive his opt out. Why didn't you just try to sign Rendon? Yeah, 
that's what I look at because this team is so against trading prospects and they were against it when the farm was considered a lot richer than it is now. It's still a good farm, but I think we all acknowledge that in a couple of years, their farm system is no longer going to be near the top. And that's what happens when you have a lot of graduations. And obviously there's the international market penalties that don't help anything. But now you're talking about giving up prospects to get this guy. You're taking on some risk. And as far as the opt-out goes, you know, I don't know if he will or, or won't opt out. Um, he's a West Coast guy. I don't know if there's, you know, a situation out there that could be appealing to him at that time. But you, you obviously, I guess you would want him to waive it. But at, but then you're taking on all this money long term when you, you know, you could have made a valiant effort at a more valiant effort to sign Rendon. I just think when you really look at the Arenado thing, uh, it would be fun to watch. He and Freddie would be something else. Uh, you've got Acuna. I mean, that lineup is just ridiculous. I just don't think that it's a direction that they're going to wind up going. But at the same time, you could argue, okay, you're going to trade top assets for Lindor without even knowing if you're going to have him or not. And maybe he, you know, you wind up trading for him. You have a couple good years with him, and he leaves for San Francisco, and you're left with nothing. Whereas with Arenado, you would at least be able to keep the player. So yeah, I mean, I get it. There's an argument, you know, a few ways for this. Personally, I was really surprised, and Grant, I'd like your take on this too. I was really surprised at how things unfolded with Colorado because he just got that extension. And, you know, he could have been the best player in franchise history. He still can be, obviously, but he would be kind of the face of the next era of Rockies. Obviously, he signed the extension, so he was willing to stay there, but it seems like he was sold a little bit on a plan that never really came to fruition as far as them spending and trying to win. I mean, they wasted a lot of money on their bullpen and whatnot. So it just seems like that relationship's fractured. I don't know how it's going to play out, and I don't know if it, he winds up in Atlanta. But long story short, if he's going to wind up being available, the Braves are going to be on the short list of teams who I'm sure are going to inquire about him and you know maybe get something done. But there's a lot of complicating factors, and as far as how this affects it, uh, I really can't say one way or another. Yeah, that's a good point. And you bring up the Colorado aspect of it and that relationship that they have, which clearly, to use that word again, is fractured. No two ways about that. And I think that it's pretty easy for him to say, hey, was I sold the bill of goods here when your team doesn't go out and really make any kind of serious acquisitions? And then you've got some kind of galaxy brain math going on from the ownership side of things saying, oh, well, based on if it's an even or odd year, we're going to get back to winning more games. And just stuff that is not even quantifiable whatsoever. And if that's the direction that I'm hearing and that's the input that I'm getting, I've got to start to wonder what exactly did I get myself into. But for the financial security of being one of the highest paid players in baseball, I guess, you know, you're not going to win everything when it comes to uh, deciding where you're going to be playing baseball. But when it comes to the Braves, they've got to think about extending Freddie Freeman, which I think is going to happen well before he ends up in free agency. I don't think he's going to get to free agency. For that matter, yeah. you have Acuna, you have Albies both locked into deals that really aren't going to escalate at any point to stop you from being able to make the other moves that you need to. Mike Soroka and Max Reed are still pre-arbitration, so you're not worried about them. Your core and your franchise player in Freeman are all pretty much locked in. You've got a little bit of money into the bullpen, clearly, with Will Smith and Mark Melanson and, and those guys, but not so much that I think it would stop you from being able to take on a big salary, whether that's Arenado or somebody else. But I just kind of have to wonder, based on Liberty Media's spending in the past, it has trended up. The Braves have got more money in their payroll than they've ever had. 
and it's gotten them creeping into the top 10 in Major League Baseball again as far as payrolls are concerned. But when you think about the long-term things, we've seen a lot of one-year deals recently, which is fine. I think those are pretty smart. Uh, But we've also got to kind of wonder, what is it going to be from a long-term plan? Because fans want to know there's some consistency and that ownership is committed to helping put the best product on the field at all times, which, hey, it's sports. These things are cyclical. You're going to have good years when you don't expect to. You're going to have some bad years that you didn't expect either. But before I get too far off in the weeds, I think that Arenado and Colorado is something that it is inevitable that I think he gets traded, but I don't think it's inevitable that he ends up in a Braves uniform. Uh, A couple of more of these before we uh, call it a day as far as the Braves part of our discussion for this episode of From the Diamond. I want to ask you, Uh, One from Opinionated Braves fan, as if there's not enough of those out there on Twitter. This one is an actual account uh, running as Opinionated Braves fans. How long do you think Mark Melanson will be the closer? Uh, He was inconsistent last year, and it seems like he might not be the best guy in the pen to do it. Uh, I disagree on the inconsistency from Melanson. He had one really bad game against the Miami Marlins. And in the game one NLDS debacle that, you know, you have Chris Martin get hurt. Luke Jackson and Mark Melanson were just kind of thrown into the eighth inning before either one of them would ideally have been out there. But Melanson came in and pitched well for the remainder of the division series. And if you look at his overall numbers, uh, he was pretty darn good as a Braves closer last year. So I'd be interested to hear your take on it. It's obviously we got Will Smith in this mix as well now, but I don't really see a problem with Melanson being a guy that's getting a bulk of the save chances because that game is going to have to be saved possibly two or three times before you get to the ninth inning. We learned that last year. Yeah, Melanson was pretty good in that role. Um, I certainly wouldn't say inconsistent, but there's a reason why when they signed Will Smith, they still said that Melanson was the closer. Uh, First of all, a lot of people got caught up in that, and it was like, what was it, November or something? I I mean, it's, you know, I mean, who cares? Like, they're going to say what they're going to say, but these things are always fluid. You know, unless Rivera is your closer, I mean, things are kind of, you know, there's no Trevor Hoffman here. So, yeah, I mean, I think Will Smith was going to get his fair share of closing opportunities. I just think that's natural over the course of the season. You know, they paid him a pretty penny to do this, to pitch the you know seventh inning, the eighth inning, the ninth inning, wherever they need him. Uh, you know, even look at like, so Anthony Swarzak was like the best reliever on planet Earth for several weeks last season. And people were asking why wasn't he closing games? And Snit's response was always, I'm bringing him in where I need him. And he would come in, he would get out of a bases loaded, one out, he'd get out of it. He really excelled in that role in that short amount of time, but he really excelled in that role for a while. And the way I'm looking at this is, you know, you have Shane Green, you have Melanson, you have Smith. I mean, there's really no reason to be concerned, especially as a fan, there's no reason to be concerned about who's going to be getting saves. I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, if they're in a jam in the seventh inning, they might bring in Melanson if they like the matchup. And then Will Smith is going to pitch the ninth later. Uh, so I wouldn't be too caught up in that. I, I would say that they just said, just for the sake of structure, just for the sake of, I guess, some form of normality they wanted, they said, okay, well, Melanson is our primary ninth inning guy. But, I mean, we've seen this over and over again. This is so fluid. And if Melanson does a good job in the role, he's still going to get the bulk of it. But they're certainly not going to stop them from bringing him in in the eighth if they really need him. So, I mean, Melanson's really well-paid. Smith is really well-paid. I mean, Shane Green was an all-star last year. I know with the Braves he wasn't the same, but they have enough guys that they can find a combination one way or another that works. And then 
after this season, Melanson and Green are going to be free agents. O'Day could potentially be a free agent. So then maybe the bullpen has to be remade, and at that point, Will Smith is your closer, like primary closer per se. But for right now, I wouldn't worry too much about it and just say, you know, if there is a season, they'll go in saying that Melanson is our uh, top ninth inning guy, but we can certainly deviate from that when the situation calls for it. Yeah, and the Braves were in a position last year where they really couldn't deviate from anything because nobody was getting the job Mm -hmm. done. As you mentioned, when the Braves got Anthony Swarzak, there was a three- or four-week run there where I know I was sitting there thinking, well, there's not anything better in this bullpen. Why is this guy not closing? But the more and more you watch this team, you discovered that, hey, you know what, a seventh-inning lead that goes away is just as bad or worse than a ninth-inning lead that goes away, depending on how you feel about losing you know, earlier more than later. It, long story short, you've got to protect that lead throughout the night, not just those final three outs. And I think the Braves have the depth and the talent to be able to do that, even if the names change in the particular inning that you associate that particular reliever with. And I think that they're pretty happy to have the group that they uh, currently put together because it does have a lot of experience. And that's something they were severely lacking when they started the 2019 season and something I think Alex Anthopoulos learned from last year as well. Well, Gabe, we've learned a lot and we've had kind of a fluid situation on this podcast for a while, but I appreciate you jumping in and uh, sharing some of your Braves knowledge and we'll enjoy chatting with you uh, anytime that we can do it, obviously, as we wait for baseball to come back and wait to see what the Braves and all 29 other teams are going to be able to do once we figure out what a season's going to look like as well. Absolutely. To quote one of the most boring sports cliches out there, we're taking it day by day. We always do. We always do. As far as the day by day stuff is going, what have you been doing to kind of keep yourself from maybe going stir crazy or getting cabin fever as we uh, have this shelter in place stuff going on and the self quarantine, as folks like to call it as well? Have you gotten into any good TV shows or anything like that? Um, Obviously, been watching a lot of Netflix. I really only leave the apartment to walk my dog. So, uh, I did drive out to the battery on what would have been the Braves home opener for a column that I was doing. So I, wa- I walked around there, you know, it was kind of sad mm-hmm. to see how empty that was. Uh, yeah, plenty of Netflix, uh, lots of YouTube, you know, I've never been an, into watching old games. I've watched a couple. I watched game seven between the Diamondbacks and the Yankees a week or two ago. So that was really interesting to see like all the way through for the first time. Watch Roger Clemens' 20-strikeout game. So, I mean, there's some stuff there. I wouldn't say any specific show I'm glued to right now. I'm, like, kind of experimenting, looking at a lot of different ones. I will say I have watched uh, several episodes of Tiger King, and I don't like it. <laughs> Lots of PS4. Uh, I've got a Padres franchise going in MLB The Show. You know, it could be a lot worse, obviously, for a lot of us. So, you know, when I'm sitting there kind of bored, it's like, well, you know, a lot of people have it a lot worse right now. So we're just kind of making do with what we have. I'm trying to write every other day and just kind of get by. What about you? Yeah, it's pretty much the same thing for me in terms of you got to think about how fortunate you are if you're in the position to not have to be overly concerned about job security and things of that nature, because I know that's something that so many people right now are dealing with. And hopefully as we move toward whatever treatment or vaccine or uh, whatever the next course of action is, as far as being able to get on the other side of this coronavirus thing, you know, the economy is going to be able to get back started and these folks are going to be able to get back to work and be able to earn again. I know that a lot of people are concerned about that. So there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about what possible things that you can do to help out those that are in need, but also just to take an inventory of how lucky we are as we have a little bit of time to self-reflect. So I'd say there's been some self-reflection in addition to uh, watching some TV 
uh, spending time with family, all that good stuff. And another interesting thing as far as watching old games is concerned, if you want to get down a good rabbit hole on YouTube, there are some Major League Baseball All-Star games. I watched the one from 1977, uh, which was Jim Palmer of the American League against Don Sutton of the National League. That was pretty cool. I also watched the 1985 All-Star game, which was in Minnesota. And that was also a, a pretty neat game to watch. Just some of the guys that I grew up, you know, my first impression of baseball was built on a lot of guys that played in that 85 All-Star game, which was called by Vin Scully, which doesn't hurt anybody's feelings. So a lot of good stuff as far as that's concerned. And, um, you know, just the opportunity to slow down a little bit and to relive some of that. And again, it is what it is as far as you know where we are and what we're trying to do. But uh, certainly it's up to each one of us to try to make the best of it as well or make the most of it. And I would say watching old baseball games is uh, one way to pass the time and something that I've enjoyed quite a bit. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate the time as always, and I look forward to doing this with you again very soon. Sure thing, Grant. Uh, appreciate you having me on, and uh, stay safe down there in Florida. All right, well, let's talk about what's been going on across Major League Baseball over the last week, and in particular, some big news heading into the weekend. And to help me do that, I want to welcome Bill Rowland into the show as always. Bill, hope you've had a good week and hope you're ready to talk about some baseball. Even though we don't have the games back quite yet, maybe we're trending in the right direction. I was going to say, everything that we've been talking about uh, looks like Major League Baseball is going to be possibly, possibly the first one that comes back for us. And uh, and I, again, as long as it's safe and it can be done in a, in a manner that doesn't put anybody at risk, I'm all for it. I'm ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. Want everybody to be staying safe out there and taking all the necessary precautions. But I know that we've all got an eye on the future when it comes to getting things back to normal and getting some of those normal everyday things that we've always appreciated and have been a big part of our lives, you know, like sports and things of that nature, getting those back at some point in the not too distant future. So we don't have an exact timeline, but Bill, there continues to be news about the contingency plans for Major League Baseball as far as trying to get the 2020 season in. You and I have spent the last, what, month talking about what could it look like to try to get some kind of full season in, and if so, what exactly is that going to look like? How many games is that going to be? We don't know exactly on that regard, but some interesting news from USA Today and Bob Nightingale on Friday is that Major League Baseball is considering realignment for the 2020 season. Now, you might ask yourself, what's realignment going to have to do with anything? Why would we need to realign the leagues? Well, it's because we would not be playing under the normal National League and American League rules. We would be playing as the Grapefruit League and the Cactus League. So 15 teams in each spot, Bill, that kind of works out because you got the 15 Florida teams doing their spring training, and then you've got the 15 teams out in Arizona doing things on the Cactus side. This is really fascinating, though, that baseball would go away from the AL and NL alignment, but this might be some version of reality if you want to try to get a season in and all of the things that come into this. So we're going to dissect this. But as you hear that, just initially as a baseball fan, as I know you are and as I know I am and people listening to this podcast are, what do you think about baseball going away from American League and National League baseball? Uh, well, let's let's be honest. Grant, desperate times call for desperate measures, right? <laughs> so, I mean, I, look, I don't have a problem with it. I'll be honest with you. I didn't realize, and maybe it's because I just never sat down and counted or paid any attention to it. I didn't realize that Arizona and Florida were split exactly 15 and 15. That was the bombshell. As I'm reading this, I went, is that true? Is that really? They're really split that way? I was, I had never thought about it before, but it makes sense. Although I still look at it and say, Odd number of teams, so somebody has a day off every day. Somebody right. they're gonna. I mean, I, I guess in the article, Nightingale talked about there would be 
one team that would have to play a doubleheader so that you made sure that everybody was playing uh, you know, at least one game on that day. So that's a logistic nightmare as well. Look, there's a lot, a lot of moving parts still to figure out on this. But just the fact that they're talking about the opportunity to get baseball back for us, hey, explore every opportunity you can and let's figure out if it can be done. For those of you who may not realize exactly what teams are in Florida and what teams are in Arizona, let me run through this real quick because the realignment structure, I guess, is what they're calling it for the Grapefruit League would include three divisions. Same thing for the Cactus League. In the Grapefruit League, you'd have a North, a South, and a West division. In the North division, you'd have the Yankees, the Phillies, the Blue Jays, the Tigers, and the Pirates. Now, this is not based on where they are regionally in the United States. This is based on where in Florida they are. So they're all clustered together right around the... St. Petersburg, Tampa area of things, but there are a lot of clubs around there. So then you go to the South, which is more of the Fort Myers side of things, which would have the Red Sox and the Twins, also the Braves, who of course are in Northport, the Tampa Bay Rays, who are right next door in Port Charlotte, the Baltimore Orioles, who are in Sarasota, the city, not the county. Braves are in Sarasota County. That's the five teams there. In the West, you'd have the Washington Nationals and Houston Astros, who of course share their facility, the New York Mets, the St. Louis Cardinals, and the Miami Marlins. Cards and Marlins also share a facility, so that kind of works out there. And that's down on the Miami side of things. It's funny that they call it the West Division because it's on the East Coast side of Florida, but be that as it may, that's what Florida would look like. So the Yankees, the Phillies, the Blue Jays, the Tigers, the Pirates in one division, Red Sox, Twins, Braves, Rays, and Orioles in another division, and then the Nationals, Astros, Mets, Cardinals, and Marlins in the third division. On the Cactus League side, you've got the Chicago Cubs, San Francisco Giants, Arizona Diamondbacks, Colorado Rockies, and Oakland Athletics in the Northeast Division. In the West Division, you have the LA Dodgers, the Chicago White Sox, Cincinnati Reds, Cleveland Indians, and the Los Angeles Angels. In the Northwest Division, the Milwaukee Brewers, San Diego Padres, Seattle Mariners, Texas Rangers, and Kansas City Royals. So as you look at this, Bill, at least as I look at it, it seems like the Cactus League side of things might be a little bit more American League heavy, though it might just be my first reaction to it. The Grapefruit League side of things seems to have a little bit more National League flavor to it. Either way, this would make for some really fascinating baseball and some really fascinating matchups because we've never seen anything like this, even with more interleague play, which has to happen every day, as you mentioned, with 15 teams in each league. Just to think about stirring the pot like this and changing the way that we've watched baseball and I guess there's a lot of questions we'd have to answer about it. But as you mentioned, desperate times call for desperate measures. I'll tell you what, that uh, division that the Nationals would be in in the Florida League is a killer. You'd have the Nationals yeah. and the Astros, the two teams in the World Series, and then the Cardinals, uh, the Mets, who are okay, but and then the Marlins. But three of those teams with the, the Nationals, Astros, and Cardinals, that's, that's a killer. It would be fun. Um, the Red Sox and Braves used to play, obviously, in the same city way, way back before any of us were ever around. Um, being in that same division, I think they would be the class, along with the Twins. I mean, mm -hmm. that's a tough one as well. I think it's fun. I, I like the fact that they're thinking about doing this and, again, mixing it up the way that they would. Again, some of it is a logistic nightmare. As you pointed out, the Nationals and Astros sharing their facility. I think the Cardinals and Marlins as well. Um, sharing one. So there's a lot of, of that go-between uh, of teams. How would you work it out? If you're going to play at home that day, do you only play the 1 o'clock game and then, like, the Astros will play at 7 that night? You know, they they made a great point in the article as well that, hey, look, if you're a, an East Coast, uh, you know, fan, 
and say you want to watch your, I don't know, White Sox. I guess they're more central, but still, if they're playing out in Arizona and first pitch isn't until 10 o'clock that night, you're going to stay up and watch that until 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning when that's going to be every single game rather than, oh, they're just out on the West Coast. We all have dealt with that, obviously, when, you know, Atlanta or Boston or whoever goes out west, you, you may not catch all the games, but if all of your games are going to be that late, that's going to be tough, but I guess it's better than nothing. Yeah, it would be totally different for some of these teams that if you think about, there's nobody who's from the direct East Coast that is playing in the Cactus League. It's mostly teams from the Midwest being like the Cubs and the Cincinnati Reds, the Cleveland Indians, and then further out west as you go, also throw the Kansas City Royals in that mix as well. You've got one of the Texas teams and the Rangers that's also out in the Cactus League. But otherwise, Giants, Diamondbacks, Rockies, Athletics, both the L.A. clubs, and let's see, the San Diego Padres, Seattle Mariners. Those are all teams that their normal start times won't really be affected as far as their fan bases are concerned. Will be a little bit different for the Cubs, the Indians, and for the Cincinnati Reds. But either way, I think you've got to kind of look at it as what is the most feasible way to try to have baseball happening. This would also, I guess, include the empty stadiums thing because you can't really gather in groups yet. But another question I would have from this is, what do you do with the DH? Does baseball universally adopt the DH for one year because this is not league-on-league play? Do you just play under your normal rules in that case? Hey, if you're in Tampa playing the Yankees, everybody's using the DH. However, if you're in Northport and they're playing the Braves, the pitcher has to bat. Are we doing it that way? as the interleague play would be, or do you think they might actually uh, look at the DH and just say, hey, everything's so mixed up this year anyway, why not do that? That's just another thing that I was thinking about. I don't know that it's the most important thing that's going on in this plan, but a lot of logistics that would have to be worked out in this contingency, which has not been confirmed by Major League Baseball. And if anything, as we learned last week, when these reports come out, they might go as far as to say, hey, we're having a lot of discussions. So this has not been our final plan yet. Yeah, I think you're going to see the DH if they do this. Um, you'll see the DH be pretty much universal. Because don't most of the time in spring training, if there's a question, they just DH and they don't worry about having the pitchers okay. back anyway. So, I mean, th- I would imagine that would just make more sense because we know they're going to have the expanded rosters, right? I mean, that's going to be, I would imagine, a definite where you're probably going to get 30 up from the 26 that they would have had. Um, I think that's a number that we've, that we've both seen thrown out there quite a bit. I would think they would just do, you know what, one year you're going to have a DH and let's go and let's go play. Um, Again, if they get it done, interesting that I saw, you know, people have talked about in Arizona, the spring training facilities aren't indoors. They're not a closed facility and it'll be 100 plus degrees. Now it can get that hot down in Florida, not generally, but Arizona, and I don't care if people are going to say, oh, but it's a dry heat. I don't care. 100 to 110 is no fun. So I'll be interested to see how they deal with that. Are they just going to try to start every single game, uh, you know, at seven, eight, nine o'clock, you know, local time so that the the heat isn't as bad? Or can they do that? Because if they're sharing facilities, I would imagine they're going to have a couple of games, maybe at each facility each day, if they only have four or five of them that, that that they can use. Now, one of them will be obviously Arizona's park. So they can, you know, that'll be fine because they can they can go indoors there. But the rest of them, that's going to be tough. They're talking about playing at college sites and everything else. You know, they don't have any kind of dome or anything going on. Yeah, there's not going to be a whole lot in terms of the normal retractable roofs and things like that that baseball has done to combat the elements. You're not going to be able to do that. However, if you're playing mostly night games, at least it wouldn't be 
during the heat of the day. But as you mentioned, for some of those uh, afternoon games, if you're playing double headers, clearly you're not going to be starting those at 7 p.m. Somebody or some bodies are going to have to go in through a pretty tough day as far as the weather is concerned. But that might be the exception and not the rule. And you start looking at the fact that these 15 teams are going to play each other for the entirety of this schedule. So you're not going to have the variation of, oh, well, we got to play a getaway day at noon because we're flying to Los Angeles from New York or to New York from Los Angeles. You're eliminating that part of the schedule altogether. So technically, you would be able to play the majority of your games at night unless it called for playing a day game. So you would have that going for you. However, I will point out something that people may not be aware of in the state of Florida when it comes to baseball. I worked in the Florida State League, which is the advanced A league, and they all play in the spring training facilities throughout the summer. I would like to let you know in Florida throughout the summer, it rains (laughs) and it rains a lot and it rains all over the state. And you're going to have all kinds of rainouts and double headers. And I don't even know what happens when you rain out a double header for major league baseball, but in minor league baseball, it was not the most fun and culminated at one point in me calling a day of back-to-back double headers that started at 5 p.m. on one night. And then the doubleheader the next day started at 10 a.m. And we proceeded to play a very long extra inning game in the first of those before playing the second game and essentially playing, if I remember correctly, these are seven inning doubleheaders. Right. We played something like 33 innings of baseball in less than 24 hours. Mm. It was a lot is what I'm going to say. And so for the Florida side of things, again, because you're not talking about retractable roofs and all the things that you have in Major League Baseball, there will be some rainouts in the state of Florida throughout the summer. So this is not going to be logistically as easy as just saying, oh, well, every now and again, there'll be a rainout. There will be a lot of rainouts. I called the first season of baseball that I did there, or on average, I'll just put it that way, there were a dozen doubleheaders that I called. There were multiple rain delays, even games that just were outright postponed because it just didn't work out to get those games back in. So for Florida, from a logistics standpoint, not going to be as easy as just saying, okay, well, we've got the 15 teams. They're all here. They're in their spring training facilities, and away we go. Well, yeah, because, I mean, you know, even down there in Atlanta, in the East Coast in the summertime, afternoon thunderstorms are given. I mean, it happens all the time here in Washington. You're always looking at the weather radar and going, all right, do we start this at 7.05 or do we let it pass through and we'll start at, you know, 8.05 because it's going to come quick and it's going to be out of here in a hurry, but we don't want to start and then 30 minutes later, you're in a rain delay. And they've done that a couple times at Nats Park and the storm never develops and it never gets here. But they're always being safe rather than sorry. Well, in Florida, anybody that's spending time down there, you can almost set your watch by afternoon thunderstorms. It seems like every day between like 3.30 and 5, you're going to get it somewhere in the state. So, yeah, these teams are going to have to deal with that. Not as much, obviously, um, as you would out in Arizona. Florida is definitely going to have the the tougher case with dealing with the weather. Um, But looking at these divisions – Grant, if you look over the way they've set them up, is there anything intriguing? I mean, obviously they've done it because it makes sense distance-wise because they want to quarantine everybody and have them in the hotel, and you can only go from the hotel to the stadium, and they're talking about making the guys sit six feet apart, like up in the stands, which is going to be yeah. weird. And I mean, the energy in, in these things are is going to be way off. But take that aside. Is there any of the matchups where you go, wow, that's going to be really interesting to watch maybe these teams be, even if it's just for one year, be in this division. To me, there isn't really anything that jumps out where I go, wow, that's going to be a lot of fun to watch these two teams have to battle, you know, 
10, 15, 20 times, you know, what, whatever the regular season would be in that division. Is there anything that, that jumps out? Because, I mean, you got the Nationals, the Mets, and the Marlins. They play everybody all year long anyway. The Braves are kind of tossed in with, with the four other AL teams. That, to me, could be interesting. Yeah, that's really interesting from the Braves side of things. That was the one thing I was going to say is having the Braves in a division that is all American League teams is kind of fascinating. Minnesota Twins obviously were very good last year. They were a a playoff club and uh, one that can hit a ton of home runs. The Boston Red Sox, of course, the Braves have had a, I don't want to call it a rivalry, but they have historical significance from dating all the way back to their Boston days. Tampa Bay Rays, the Baltimore Orioles, also American League East teams that the Braves see fairly often when it comes to interleague play. But as far as the intrigue is concerned with any of these divisions and with any of this, if we had not had so much interleague play in the last, what, two decades or more now, I would say there'd be a lot more intrigue to this. But the fact is, there's just really not a whole lot beyond the uh, novelty, I guess, of having completely different divisions that include winning a division by having to beat teams from another league in a normal year. But as we've learned, this is going to be anything but normal if baseball wants to get this schedule put together. They're going to have to reschedule all of this, uh, the entire regular season, just based on the spring training geography. And as I mentioned, it may not seem like as big a deal. Of course, it'll depend on the length of the season, but during the course of a normal season, you're going to see more than just 14 other clubs. Now you're not going to see more than those 14 other clubs because you're Interleague games are no longer really interleague games because you're going to be playing whoever you're going to be playing whenever you're going to be playing them based on the geography of the teams in either state. So I don't know if intrigue is the right word, but they're going to have to reschedule this whole thing. It's going to be a bit jarring, I think. But then again, it's just going to feel like one big season of interleague play, I guess, is the best way I could describe it. You look at the, I guess, Cactus League West, as they're calling it. I love the fact that the two L.A. teams would be there together. Yeah. That could be fun. And then Cincinnati and Cleveland. I know they've done interleague and everything else, but to be in the same division, I think that makes that a lot of fun for Ohio. Now, the other division in the Cactus League out in the Northwest, that one, not great baseball there in that, yeah. in that division. I guess Milwaukee would probably be the class of that division right now. And maybe the Padres behind them, but then Seattle, Texas, and Kansas City. Oh, it's like the it's like an AL Central setup almost. Yeah, I can tell you this though: with the Braves, the Twins, and the Rays all in one division, that would be a pretty competitive grouping right there. Red Sox clearly, I don't think, are going to be as good as they've been in years past, but they're not going to be a pushover team. Orioles are kind of who the Orioles are, but that North division. If you look at what the Yankees have got going on, they'll get some competition I think from the Phillies and maybe the Blue Jays but the Tigers and the Pirates clearly not teams that are going to match up particularly well with the Yankees on a regular basis then you look at that West division it is kind of fun to know that the hey the World Series teams from last year are in the same division now all of a sudden and you got the Nationals the Astros there the Mets I think can challenge you on a given night but certainly not one that I think we were coming into the season looking at as a favorite to win their normal division Cardinals I think are always there they're always competitive And then the Marlins continue to do the rebuilding that they're doing. So they've got some talent, but not necessarily a club I expect to really be pushing the Nationals and the Astros to the limit to win that West in the Grapefruit League. Uh, As I look at the Cactus League in the Northeast Division, I think the Diamondbacks are much improved. Oakland Athletics are a very good club to me. I think they're just a very competitive grouping. 
the Cubs will be around and the Giants and the Rockies. I'm not really sure which direction those two clubs are trending. That West division in the Cactus League, the White Sox are a much improved team. I love the Reds. We talked about them quite a bit as far as a club that was perhaps the most improved over the winter. But you've got the Dodgers there, and all those teams are going to have to go through the Dodgers, including the Angels and Mike Trout. So that's, I think, interesting. Um, Brewers, I don't really know who would push them in that Northwest division. The Padres are going to be, I think, a pretty good club. But the Mariners, the Rangers, and the Royals are all teams with significant questions and not necessarily clubs that would have been looked upon as to be favorites to contend for a division title in their normal division. So it's going to be weird, and it will take some getting used to. But I think that we've realized the fact that it's probably going to take a lot of getting used to for whatever format baseball chooses, just from the length of season perspective, to decide what it's going to look like to get to the postseason. And then would that change? I don't know. Yeah, it's going to be weird to think about, you know, kids looking at this 30, 40 years from now and being like, wait a minute, what for one year? These teams, I mean, obviously there'll be explanations for it, but as you're looking back to the record book, you're just going to be like, Wait, now what happened in 2020? Why why were the Braves suddenly playing the 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 Twins and the Rays all the time and it's just going to be weird when you look through like an old sports almanac and see how it shakes out um that it would be this way, but I think you'd have to look at it and man, how much fun would a a Grapefruit League Championship Series be between, you know, the Braves and the Yankees or if it was yeah. Uh, you know, the, the Nationals and the Rays or somebody like that. That's just that to me makes it very intriguing. Again, I think more of the stacked teams are in Florida than they would be in Arizona. I think the Dodgers are head and shoulders above pretty much everybody out there in Arizona. I'm not sure who pushes them. Uh, they should be in whatever, however they do the World Series, if this comes to, to pass, I would think the Dodgers are the overwhelming favorites in the Cactus League. I don't know that you can say that with the Yankees because they got three or four teams that in a you know seven-game series could really give them problems. The Yankees, their injuries that were season-ending in some cases, those aren't going away right now. They've gotten some other time to maybe get some of their other walking wounded back, but they've still had significant questions about just getting their guys healthy and ready to compete. But they showed last year that guys can plug and play and do a lot to make them a very competitive club, a very good club that was on the cusp of the World Series, of course, last year. So you've got to look at them, I think, as maybe a prohibitive favorite to at least get to the postseason. But beyond that, I think the Twins, the Braves, are both clubs that I look at as dangerous in terms of being able to make a postseason run. And you've got to look at the Washington Nationals as a team that proved it last year. A slow start didn't stop them from winning the World Series. I don't know what the Astros are going to look like this year in terms of the results on the field, but that's another story that's not going to go away. So there is some intrigue to this, and I just thought it would be fun to kind of kick it around. But one other thing that has been, I think, perhaps plaguing both of the plans that have come out thus far, as far as reports are concerned, for contingencies Major League Baseball is working through, but the quarantining of players away from their families in another state for four, four and a half months, whatever that might be. Some of the other weird things like having people sit in the stands, which I don't know that that's going to come to pass. Everybody's dressing in the same locker room. So at what point does it benefit you to just not have them around each other for the remainder of the night? There's just no reason to have people sitting in the stands, in my opinion. If you're going to do this, you're already incurring a certain amount of risk by putting people into the one locker room throughout the day and the afternoon into the evening to get ready. So why would you have people sit in the stands once the game starts? I, I guess that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. But from the human being's perspective, 
folks away from their family for long periods of time. I'm not sure what all the rules and regulations will be about that. Clearly, you want to cut down the travel. This would accomplish that quite easily as far as you know, not flying around the country all year long. But there's a whole lot of stuff that's just not necessarily uh, easy to work out or easy to see what the the best answer is going to be if baseball chooses to go in this direction. Well, and you've got the umpires as well. I mean, they're going to be right on top yeah. of the situation, so they would have to be quarantined, and you wonder how much they would move around. Obviously, they wouldn't be going from Arizona to Florida, but you even wonder how much they'd have them move around uh, in Arizona or in Florida, how, how often they would have them change um, because Major League Baseball does a pretty good job of, you know, over a course of a season, tempers start to flare and you want to make sure that the umpires aren't having seen the same guys over and over and over again. I'm not sure how you avoid that with this if you're trying to keep everybody in hotels and sequestered and and, and keep them safe quarantine. So um, that's the other thing I had saw, and I can't remember who wrote it now, but they had talked about maybe even experimenting with the the robot umps so you wouldn't have yeah. an umpire there. And it's I'm, not ready, though. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, no. If you're going to have a catcher right there, <laughs> I mean, they're not going to stay six feet behind the home plate. They're going to be right there. And if you've quarantined all these guys, and I'm assuming they'll try to figure out if these guys have had symptoms or whatever else, if nobody has the virus – and you're sending them from the ballpark back to the hotel, so you're doing everything you can to keep them from getting it, I don't see what the big, like you said, they're dressing in the same locker room. Why do they have to sit six feet apart up in the stands? They're, you know, they're going to be handling the same, you know, pine tar rags and bags and baseballs and everything else, so you're not really doing anything unless they're going to have them wipe down the ball with some Clorox wipes before every, you know, after every hit or pitch or whatever, this Clorox is an illegal substance. That's that's very true. It's a lot of stuff that's going to be have to you know take care of. But it, it it is it is odd to me that like they don't think about this type of stuff. And it it I go back to when this first started, and they had um, here in Virginia where I am, they had they had decided because it was during the high school basketball playoffs, and they ended up canceling the state tournament um, when all this went down, but. Their initial response to it was no more handshake lines at the end of games. They didn't want you to shake hands after it was said and done. And my thing was, it's okay to play 32 minutes of basketball and handle the same basketball and sweat and set picks and everything else, but God forbid you high-five at the end of the game. It's the same kind of thing here is you can dress in the locker room, you can do all this stuff, but don't you dare sit in the dugout next to each other. Yeah, I just don't think that that really computes. And there's not going to be a way to completely eliminate contact from the sport altogether. Now, baseball is different than all the other sports in terms of having guys out at their different positions and really much more spread out. And it's an individualized team sport in so far as the batter versus the pitcher. But even if you move the umpires back and away from home plate, at some point, the batter's got to stand closer than six feet to the catcher. And then when you get to first base, Guys have got to run through and run by for just the routine plays. If there's a tag play of any sort, guys are going to get closer than that. So there's a lot of this that I look at and I'm like, yeah, well, you want to minimize the number of times that it happens. But at the end of the day, and I think there have been several articles written about this, uh, just from following along with Ken Rosenthal and others, one guy tests positive. And what does that mean for that team and that clubhouse and and that locker room and and the entirety of the sport at that point if you have come back too early? What are the effects going to be? So you still end up coming back to the same place where this is a contingency 
And just for brevity's sake on the podcast, I know we've talked about it for almost half an hour now, but just to kind of wrap it up, you really don't know how you can proceed until you know what the health ramifications are going to be. Right. And you've got, you mentioned guys coming from all different parts of the country. You've also got, uh, you know, some guys went home and some of these guys are not living in the United States. Obviously, they have a lot of uh, of Latin players that will have gone home and will be coming back. Are they going to have to be, obviously, they're going to have to be tested, I would imagine, before they came in here. Can they even get in the country? Because a lot of places, they have a travel ban for it now. Are they going to give these guys an exception? And if that happens, you're going to have a lot of people screaming about, oh, of course, you're letting you know the athletes you know get the test before anybody else, and they get to you know flout the travel ban and everything else. So, I mean, there's there are a lot of things that don't necessarily have to do with how they're going to play the games, but actually getting people to Florida and to Arizona to be able to play the games. Yeah, that's uh, some of the logistics and some of the questions baseball is going to have to answer as they try to figure this out. But I did think it was an interesting report, certainly worth talking about, because you know we're not talking about the uh, 30 teams that are currently battling for first place in their respective divisions, and we may not be doing that for a while. And just the fact that, hey, when these divisions do take shape, they might take a totally different form than we've ever seen before. So another contingency baseball is kind of looking at. But something that is going on right now there will be 30 participants, and there will be 30 different players, one from each of the clubs, as MLB has announced that there will be an MLB The Show Players League with a rep from all 30 teams battling it out in video game form, and that's going to be starting this weekend and running for the next three weeks. Bill, I think this is pretty fascinating, a chance for each of the 30 teams and the fan bases to engage with the players in something a little bit different in the virtual environment as these guys go head-to-head in MLB The Show. Yeah, it's a great thing for Major League Baseball. I think it's really good for, obviously, trying to get younger baseball fans as well. Look, this isn't geared towards you and I, Grant. I mean, they've got us. Baseball already has us as fans. And, I mean, I still dabble occasionally in video games, but I'm not on Twitch or whatever other streaming service that they have watching guys play different things. But the younger set is definitely doing that and they're having a blast with it. The NBA did something similar, but they didn't do an entire league. They just kind of did a a one-weekend series thing. I think this is great for Major League Baseball. I think it's going to be a lot of fun, and I think they're going to get a lot of maybe not new fans from it, but I think they're going to get some fans that may become bigger fans from being able to interact and watch uh, some of their favorite players uh, you know, play their video game that they're used to doing in their basement. Sure. Yeah, it'd be totally different, but something that I think could engage a whole different generation of fan. And I think that's obviously important. But, you know, I don't know that we've necessarily aged out of it, even if we're not the most proficient video game players. I know I speak for myself and I guess I'm speaking for you as well. But I do think it's going to be fun just to have a little bit of competition and something as far as entertainment and fun. And this will also benefit the Boys and Girls Club. There's going to be one hundred seventy five thousand dollars by the time this tournament has been wrapped up that will be donated by Major League Baseball and the Players Association. So it's also for a cool cause. It's going to benefit charity. But as far as the way that it's going, all 30 teams, we'll call them, the representative from all 30 teams will each play each other once. There'll be 29 games for each player. They're going to be three inning games for the regular season. Top eight go to the postseason. They'll run through, I believe, best two out of three in the postseason division series and I guess the league championship series. Then when you get to the World Series, It'll be best three out of five. And these will be shorter games, too. There'll be three inning competitions, at least for the regular season games. So it won't be the traditional baseball that we've been used to as far as everybody going nine innings. But to get this thing in over a three-week span, I think it's pretty creative. 
And I think it should be a lot of fun. And we'll go through the roster of the guys that are going to be battling it out. I know for the Atlanta Braves, it'll be reliever Luke Jackson, but there are a lot of names and a lot of different ages of some of these players as well, which is kind of cool. Who's Do you have the list there in front of you by chance? Yeah, I'm going to pull up the list real quick and kind of look at the guys that are going to be involved in this because it's not necessarily a who's who of the you know number one best all-star player face of the franchise type guys, but uh, clearly video games, everybody has got uh, the opportunity to be on, we'll call it equal footing. It'll be Luke Jackson for the Braves. It'll be Ryan Stanek, who will be playing for the Marlins. For the Mets, it's Jeff McNeil. For the Nationals, Juan Soto. Reese Hoskins for the Phillies. Bo Bichette for the Blue Jays. Dwight Smith Jr. for the Orioles. Blake Snell, former Cy Young Award winner for the Tampa Bay Rays. Eduardo Rodriguez will be playing for the Red Sox. Tommy Canely will be playing for the Yankees. Josh Hader is the Brewers rep. Matt Carpenter for the Cardinals. Ian Happ for the Cubs. Cole Tucker for the Pirates. For the Reds, it'll be Amir Garrett. Carlos Santana will be playing for the Cleveland Indians. Brett Phillips for the Royals. Nico Goodrum for the Detroit Tigers. Trevor May for the Twins. Lucas Giolito will be playing for the White Sox. Out in L.A. will be Gavin Lux, the talented young rookie who represent the Dodgers. Hunter Pence for the Giants. Fernando Tatis for the Padres. David Dahl for the Rockies. Ty Buttry for the Angels. Lance McCullers will be playing for the Astros. Jesus Lozardo will be playing for the A's. It's Carl Edwards Jr. for the Mariners. And Joey Gallo for the Texas Rangers. So that is your full 30-man roster for the MLB The Show Players League. Is Hunter Pence the oldest guy? I believe he is the elder statesman. Makes me feel really, really old that I'm more of a, a decade older than him, and he's he's the hip guy playing the video games. So, uh, but that'll be fun. I mean, again, they're 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 not necessarily a lot of you know MVP Cy Young. There's a couple of guys as you mentioned, Blake Snell on there and everything. But I think it'll be a fun time. I think it'll be interesting to watch just to see how these guys. I like it just to listen to them talk trash to each other, and that's what's going to be the the fun part about it. And you're. If you've taken any kind of Spanish, a couple of these guys will probably talk trash in Spanish to each other when they play. So it'll be harder for those of us who don't speak Spanish to follow along, but still a lot of fun. No, I think it'll be a lot of fun in general just to have these guys get the opportunity to have the camaraderie that comes with this as well, because this is something I know the players are missing from this side of things as far as, you know, they go to the ballpark every day too. And it's part of their everyday life to be able to interact with not only their teammates, but also the guys that they're playing. I mean, you see folks talking during batting practice and, I know older baseball folks that look at it and think, oh, there shouldn't be that fraternization and things going on. But look, that door was opened up once free agency happened that guys were going to have friends in different cities at a higher rate than they did back in the day when the reserve clause was in place. But uh, And I bet you didn't think I'd work a reserve clause reference into the MLB <laughs> The Show Players League, but I certainly did. Either way, though, I think the players like to be able to get to the ballpark and see each other as well. And this is something that they may not be able to gather together personally in the same place, but just a little bit of an opportunity to, you know, have that camaraderie and also share it with the fans. You think any of these guys will have the rule that you have to, if you're playing, you have to be in the lineup? I mean, because some, some of these guys may not be, I mean, no offense to them, they may not be the best option for whatever you're doing that day. I mean, you, you just don't know. If you're Blake Snell, do you start yourself in every game that you play? <laughs> I don't know. See, that's the other thing. How are they going to do, like, the rest and that kind of stuff, does it just reset so you can use the same lineup, the same pitchers, the same everything? I or I, See, I these know. are things that, that need to be figured out because somebody's going to have a really big advantage if they can use their same pitcher over and over and over again. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how the whole thing plays out, but I do think it's something cool that they've kind of been doing. And we were thinking about 
a player's theme for this particular episode of the show. We put our heads together over the week leading up to it, coming up with a topic that I thought was pretty interesting, something that you brought to the table. And I'm going to let you kind of explain what we're looking for here. And then we'll both go through who our choices are. And we also threw this out on Twitter to get some fan interaction on perhaps who some of your favorites were. But before I get too far down the line, Bill, kind of explain what it is that we're about to go through and what the criteria is for selecting these players. Yeah, I was we thinking about you and I had talked off the air the last couple of weeks, you know, with this whole quarantine, both of us had kind of been going through old stuff from our childhood baseball cards and the like and everything. And as I was going through it, I started thinking about some of the players from my youth that I loved, but it really made no sense to to have them be one of your favorite players. I don't mean superstars. I mean, like, the guys that when you would go out and play with your friends and you would mention them to them, they would look at you if they weren't big baseball fans, like, I don't even know who that is. Yet, for some reason, they stayed near and dear to your heart the entire time. For me, uh, because growing up a Red Sox fan, you would obviously think that you would gravitate towards guys. I grew up when, you know, Jim Rice and Fred Lynn and Dwight Evans and that whole mix of people, Wade Boggs in the early 80s, But for me, my guy was a second baseman named Marty Barrett, who never hit more than five home runs in any season, only had 18 for his career, didn't slug for his career more than 350, yet I was bound and determined when I was in my early teens that I was going to wear number 17 because of Marty Barrett, whose claim to fame, he was the ALCS MVP in 86. But other than that, Marty Barrett is somebody that, unless you're a Red Sox fan or a big baseball fan, you don't have any idea who that guy was or whatever happened to him. I don't even know whatever happened to him. I just know that for about a four or five year period, all I wanted to do was be Marty Barrett. Well, that's a really good point and a really interesting kind of deep cut, if you will, because that's what most of these players are about. I mean, some of them can be everyday guys, as Marty Barrett was for quite some time, but you wouldn't necessarily have looked at him as the central figure of those Red Sox teams that you grew up watching. Now, for me, in the early part of my childhood, the Braves were not a really great baseball club. And then all of a sudden in 91, all of that changed. And while I had the usual favorites, you know, the Gantz and the Justices and Glavin and Smoltz, and I think Smoltz was really my favorite player after Dale Murphy, who I really grew up and was my number one favorite player for so long. But I was fascinated as a kid. I don't know why just gravitating towards, well, you've got your team in place, but you make these trades and you bring in these players. And I was just fascinated by the trade with the Cubs in 91 that brought over Mike Bilecki and Damon Berryhill. And for whatever reason, I just felt like, well, this is going to be an important trade. This is cool. I I don't know what it was that, that just jumped out to me. And I started looking through baseball cards and pulling them all out. And I'm like, man, Mike Bilecki, he won 18 games in 1989. So He's got to be another great addition to this pitching staff that already has Glavin and Smoltz and Steve Avery and Charlie Liebrandt. So this will be your fifth starter. And you've got these great pitchers and Mike Bilecki is going to win 18 games again. And it's went so far as to have the opportunity in the offseason after the 91 season to meet at Whitewater, not too far from Atlanta, where Tom Glavin and Mike Bilecki were doing an autograph signing. And there weren't a ton of people out there, but... My choice was to meet Mike Bilecki as opposed to meet Tom Glavin, which in retrospect was probably (laughs) not the best choice from a historical perspective. But at that time, at that age, 
I just was fascinated by meeting Mike Bilecki. I don't know how to explain that. And when I look back on it, I've had an opportunity to meet Tom Glavin in the years that followed. But at that time as a kid, Mike Bilecki was my guy for whatever reason. He had a couple of nice seasons with the Braves, though, too. I mean, he didn't go and win 18 games again. But he had some uh, some pretty decent years with Atlanta uh, coming out of the bullpen even. Yeah, he did. He ended up being the Braves' fifth starter in 92 for a while before he got injured. And then Pete Smith came back into the fray, and the Braves ended up winning the National League West again. And then he came back and was pitching for the Braves as a reliever toward the end of his career. But again, for whatever reason, that was just somebody that gravitated to me. And the same thing with Damon Berryhill. I mean, I was just convinced that he was going to become the Braves' starting catcher. Of course, they had Greg Olson back in the day. And Berryhill was a pretty regular catcher as part of that tandem because it always seemed like the Braves had a platoon behind the plate until Javi Lopez showed up. And then, of course, Brian McCann showed up. But so many other years, the Braves have been using a couple of different catchers. And for that same reason, I guess, the transitive property of being in that trade, it was Mike Bilecki and Damon Berryhill were two guys that I just thought it were awesome additions to that Braves club as a young kid. It's funny. I remembered those guys because uh, I was in college, 91. I, I did probably my second or third year in college. But TBS had, of course, kind of overtaken all the cable systems. So we got to see all of the Braves games. So I remember those guys, Damon Berryhill and, and Bilecki and all those guys. And my buddy in college was from Richmond, Virginia, where the AAA team was. So he had seen a lot of the guys come through there as well. So I kind of get it after watching, uh, you know, those teams for so many years because they were always on. And if you want to watch baseball, that was pretty much what you had to watch. Was either the, the Cubs on G- WGN or the Braves on TBS. So a lot of fun for that. And, and the responses that we got on Twitter, obviously a lot of Braves fans stepped up and they are some of the guys from that era as well, including Mark Lemke. Again, another yep. guy who you would look at, and that's from uh, Sam Thames, uh, had sent us the picture of Mark Lemke as a guy that he looked at. And Lemke, I think, fits that mold perfectly. He had a nice, what, 10, 11-year career in Major League Baseball. He was never a star, but he was never bad. He was always just a solid guy. I tell you, a matter of fact, I've worked with Mark Lemke for the better part of my career down here. We work together at the Braves Radio Network now. And Mark would have been the MVP of the 1991 World Series had the correct team won it. If the Twins had not won the World Series and Jack Morris had an outdueled John Smoltz in Game 7, Mark Lemke batted 417 in that series and was in charge of a couple of big rallies in Atlanta to help the Braves win all three games at Fulton County Stadium. So I think Mark Lemke is a great choice. That, of course, the mention came from Sam. We also got one for Rafael Belliard, who was an integral part of the early 90s. Actually, all the way through the 90s, Belliard hung around with the Braves just as that defensive specialist to help shore up the defense up the middle. There was a lot of playing time that went to Jeff Blauser over that time as well, but Belliard was always around. And then, of course, the ageless wonder Julio Franco got a vote, and I'm interested to see what your take is on this. Julio Franco was not a superstar, but he made it pretty big in his prime, in my opinion. I mean, he was an all-star. He won a batting title, but I think most people remember him as the guy that was just determined to play baseball for what seemed like the rest of his life all the way through his you know mid to late 40s. Yeah, his last appearance in the major leagues came in 2007 with the Mets. His first appearance was 1982 with the Phillies. That is incredible to me. I didn't realize, I mean, I knew Franco hung around for a while. I didn't realize it had been 25 years 
that he hung around. But yeah, I don't know that he would qualify under that because again, you talk about what three all-star appearances as I'm looking over his numbers here. He was uh, a silver slugger a couple different times, top 10 in the MVP in 1994. But yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess most people, if you were a fan of whatever team he was playing for, and he played for a lot of them, um, if you said, you know, oh, Julio Franco's my guy on yeah. this team, I'm not sure that that most people look at it and say, well, okay. I mean, again, he did he hit 341 the one year in Texas is probably his best year, but I'm not sure that he would still be the guy you'd go, oh yeah, I understand why you're a big Julio Franco fan. Yeah, interesting. I was looking at Julio Franco's first game and I believe his last game. And so when he debuted, he was on the same team with Pete Rose. When he retired or in his last appearance, he was playing against Miguel Cabrera. Just in case you want to know like what kind of generational gap that he's covering over the course of his career, which for two and a half decades, that's a pretty good run. And he even went, I believe, overseas and was still playing baseball as of not too long ago. It may have been four, five, six years now, but he was still playing baseball into his 50s. So really impressive, Julio Franco, for his staying power. Uh, a couple of the other Braves blasts from the past. I think Ryan Klesko was certainly a good one. He was a big part of the Braves' 95 World Series winning team. Pretty cool, the memories that people have. And you got a couple that uh, came from, I believe, the D.C. slash Baltimore region. Yeah, one of the guys that uh, obviously we didn't have baseball here. Uh, and that was, for me growing up, the Senators had left. And the Nationals didn't get here until 2005. So my entire childhood was no baseball in the city closest to me. So a lot of people gravitated towards Baltimore. And one of the guys, David Morris, uh, who's a, a big supporter of ours up here in D.C. And this makes sense, although I think, if I remember correctly, he was a World Series MVP, but wasn't the guy that you looked at that those Orioles teams and went, oh, that's my guy. And that would be Rick Dempsey, the catcher who is famous, you can probably go look up the videos, he was famous for his rain delay antics. Yep. Actually did a fantastic one of Babe Ruth uh, at the bat and running around and with the, he put the pillow up underneath the jersey and and he's, there's probably, it's probably on YouTube and everywhere else. But yeah, Rick Dempsey, one of those guys that wasn't necessarily an MVP type or an all-star or anything like that. In fact, I don't think he ever was an all-star but if you were a Baltimore fan of a particular age, you definitely loved Rick Dempsey. And if you were a catcher of a particular age, you wanted to be Rick Dempsey if you grew up here in the D.C., Virginia, Maryland area. Rick Dempsey had a long career. I believe he was on some Dodgers teams in the late 80s, including the one that uh, won the World Series, if I'm not mistaken, with Kirk Gibson hitting the big home run off Dennis Eckersley. So Rick Dempsey hung around for quite some time. Yeah, he had a uh, 24 24- Year career. That qualifies. Yeah, yeah. That's a long time. I mean, 69 to 92. Uh, now, again, in 92, Baltimore just kind of brought him back as a going away present. I think he hadn't been there for quite some time. He only played a few games with them, but uh, he was definitely around for a long time. And again, one of the nice guys in baseball, uh, having worked in Baltimore uh, earlier in the 2000s, he was a staple. Uh, and you always wanted to, if you were out the ballpark, have the opportunity to talk to Rick Dempsey. And 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 I was fortunate enough to do it a couple times. Just a fantastic guy, down to earth, and and loved talking baseball. And 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 again, he's a guy started in 1969, so he played with Palmer and all those guys when the Orioles were really really good. And it's just fun to to sit and listen. 
Those guys, I think, are more fun, Grant, than the stars to listen to the stories they tell. Because I think sometimes superstars are a little guarded about mm-hmm. what they want to say. And and it's fun to talk to guys like Dempsey and, and probably a lot of these other guys as well because they're going to tell the stories that maybe are embarrassing a little bit on the superstars who aren't willing to do that to themselves. And Dempsey was just one of those guys who just – he liked having fun. He loved playing baseball. Yeah, absolutely. I know my opportunity to spend some time around Mark Lemke. There's a lot of great stories that he has about some of the best years in Braves baseball history and really some of the years leading up to that when the team wasn't so good and when they weren't expected to do a whole lot and what it was like coming through that minor league system and then everything coming together in the early 90s. So a lot of great stories about stuff that happened you know, on the field, but some of the behind-the-scenes stuff that just makes you laugh that you wouldn't have known otherwise and that, yeah, some of those superstar guys might not share. So great list. Appreciate everybody kind of throwing out players that just caught their attention, not necessarily their superstar, not necessarily their favorite players, but just players that they just gravitated toward for some reason or another, regardless of how famous this guy was or how many hits he had or how many wins he had or whatever else. This was just kind of what I would describe as who was your guy. And these are some really great submissions as far as that's concerned. So kind of a cool topic and just something a little bit different than sitting around talking about what Major League Baseball is going to do to get the season on track and with all the things going on in the world. I think it's fun to kind of visit some of these things as well. Baseball, I think more than most sports, you have that connection going back to your youth on when you really started picking things up and who you rooted for. And I think it's a little bit easier because if you're looking at, you know, say football, your guy is not going to necessarily be the offensive lineman because as a 10-year-old kid, you're probably not playing offensive line, but you might be playing third base for your you know, dad pitch league, or you might be playing center field when you get the pitching machine or whatever it may be, and it's easier to grab onto these guys and remember them years later than I think in, in most other sports. Yeah, I think it definitely is, and it's just kind of cool to take that stroll down memory lane and just be a kid again, I guess, in some way, shape, or form to – revisit some of the guys that just made an impression on you for whatever the reason was. So a lot of fun doing that. And hopefully as we continue to work our way towards whatever our opening day is going to be, which we hope will be happening in 2020, Major League Baseball continues to work through its contingencies to figure out what the best plan of action is going to be when and if they can get this season rolling. And we hope it's more of a when than an if. So I appreciate you making the time, Bill, as always. Enjoy talking about it all with you and look forward to doing it again next week. Absolutely appreciate it, and uh, yeah, we'll talk. Uh, we'll talk next week, and hopefully, have more news, good news towards the start of the baseball season. All right, I look forward to that as well. So that'll do it for this week's episode of From the Diamond. As always, you can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. So make sure you subscribe there. Leave those ratings and reviews, which are always welcome and always appreciated. And if you like the podcast, be sure to share it with a friend. Also, follow along on social media on Twitter. Find the show at FromTheDiamond underscore. I am at Grant McCauley, and Bill is at Bill Rowland. You can also find Gabe Burns on Twitter at GabeBurnsAJC. On Instagram, at FromTheDiamond with no underscore on the ends where you find the show. And I am at Grant McCauley on Instagram as well. And as always, you can find every episode of the show and all the articles and so much more at FromTheDiamond.com. So that'll wrap things up for this week. My thanks again to Bill Rowland and Gabe Burns for making time to talk some Braves and Major League Baseball. And my thanks again to you for carving time out of your schedule to listen to From the Diamond. It is very much appreciated, so be sure to spread the good word. And we'll look forward to doing this again this time next week. Until then, I'm Grant McCauley. This has been From the Diamond, and we will catch you next time. So long, everyone.